Chapter Twenty One of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Twenty One. Cleona meets a stranger. I don't care, Tony. It's well enough for you to bid me not to worry, but how can I help worrying? Now, my dear, you're letting your nerves run away with you. Cullen is in no danger of anything worse than getting himself locked up, and he will hardly do that intentionally before he has located this girl again. I wish, though, that you felt free to let me notify the police. That would—he particularly said not, and it would be not right for us to go against his wishes. Very well, dear, I don't want to betray Cullen's trust in you. It's only eight o'clock now, and—he said he thought he knew where to find her? He meant to try the railway stations first, and—there's the bell now, Tony, maybe he's come home. I sincerely hope so." More trouble for Cleona than for her brother, whom he considered well able to take care of himself, Rhodes forestalled the servant by himself going to the door. He flung it open, but instead of Cullen's welcome bulk, the slighter figure of a stranger confronted him. By the entrance light, Rhodes saw that he was a man with a worn, scarred, anxious face, and the hair that showed under his hat was snowy white. "'Is Mr. O'Hara here?' "'Why do you wish to see him?' fenced Rhodes. They had been on guard all day against reporters. "'An extremely important matter, that is. Pardon me, entirely personal. If you will give him my card, I think he will see me.' Still hesitant, Rhodes took the extended card. The name was strange to him, but Cullen's friends were wide-scattered, and by no means all known to his brother-in-law. "'Mr. O'Hara is not in,' he said. "'But his sister is here. Would you care to speak with her?' "'I must find O'Hara!' The stranger's voice was vehement with some irrepressible emotion. "'For heaven's sake, let me talk to his sister, then. Perhaps she will help me to get in touch with him.' Surprised, Rose nevertheless stood aside for the man to enter. He hoped that nothing new was coming up to increase Cleona's anxiety. On the other hand, with Cullen's affairs in such a state of tension, he dared not turn the man away unheard. Then he found that Cleona herself was at his shoulder. "'Who is it?' she whispered. "'Someone for Cullen?' "'Someone to see Cullen.' He turned again to the stranger. "'Come in, won't you?' This is Mr. O'Hara's sister, Mrs. Rhodes. Cleona, this is Mr.—he glanced at the bit of pasteboard in his hand—Mr. Sven Bjornsson, a friend of your brother's. For the second time Cullen returned to sense and life. He came to with the taste and sting of liquor in his aching throat, and was at first conscious only of the extreme pain attached to the act of swallowing. Then the cup was no longer against his teeth and some support removed itself so that his head fell back rather sharply. That slight jolt hurt, hurt terribly, but it also aroused his resentment. "'You!'—the voice from between his stiff lips was a hoarse whisper. "'What? What you trying do?' From somewhere above him came the sound of a low, amused chuckle, but no other reply. He was lying flat and there was still pressure against his chest and body, though it was no longer so deadly unendurable. 
but though vapors were still above him, no stars shone through them. In fact, those vapors seemed curiously lighted from below, and he had an impression that beyond and above them something more solid than vapor intervened between him and the open sky. The humid air breathed stiflingly close and heavy, an unspeakable atmosphere, in which an odor like that of putrescence mingled with a stronger murkiness. He might have wakened in a den of reptiles, where half the inhabitants were very much deceased, or a comparatively faint whiff of air like this had scented the storehouse which was also a passage to the banks of Llewellyn Creek. Striving with all his will, fairly forcing his muscles to obedience, Cullen managed to raise his head and shoulders an inch or so, then fell back exhausted. "'Take your time,' advised a voice. "'You can hardly expect to meet such an adversary as my little gatekeeper and leap up in full strength immediately afterward.' Cullen knew that voice. "'Chesser, read,' he articulated with great difficulty, but a weaker man would have been past any speaking, for he would have been dead some time since. "'Is that thing on me now?' "'No.' I assure you, though, that it was touch and go whether or not I could get him off in time. A bit more, and your veins would have been empty, my friend." Certainly, as a rescuer, Reed had a curious way of speaking, a sneering, contemptuous way that seemed to hide a secret insult. And his veins? The sight of Cullen's throat felt swollen, and just where shoulder and neck joined there was a heavy, dull aching. That heavy blow on the neck would account for the one, but the other? He remembered the feel of those soft, cold lips between neck and shoulder. Here, have another drink. Leaning over, Reed set a glass to his patient's lips, and Cullen gladly obeyed. The fiery strength of the draught coursed through him, and it was a strength sadly needed. You are in my workroom, said Reed. Sit up and look about you. Upon again struggling to raise himself, and with Reed's arm under his shoulder, Cullen succeeded and sat panting heavily. An earlier suspicion was confirmed. From shoulder to forearm he was skillfully involved in thin, strong ropes. This did not greatly surprise him, for Reed's tone had carried its own warning of unpleasantness in store, and if the dust lady had come home she might in all innocence have related the tale of last night's doings one expects no discretion of madness." But though finding himself a bound prisoner roused no surprise, the surroundings of his captivity assuredly did. The scene was laid in the extensive cellars of the Girard House, but the colonial architect who planned that residence would have found trouble in recognizing this portion of his work. To make Reed's workroom possible, a good share of the dwelling's interior had been bodily borne out. Its ground was the level of the old cellars, and took up their full extent, which was considerable. All the central part opened upward into a kind of square shaft three stories high, with blank white sides, whose roof was that enormous cupulae which had so puzzled the station-lounger. To the contractors who did the work, Reed had explained that he required a high, well-enclosed chamber, with plenty of room in it for air circulation. Since first regaining his senses here, Cullen would have said that even more room for air circulation would have been an improvement, a great deal more room. 
In the service of science, however, men are wont to smile at personal inconvenience." So Reed smiled through the somewhat turgid atmosphere, as his prisoner sat up and took cognizance of his strange surroundings. Rather than a workroom, Cullen might have almost thought himself facing the inspiration for some mad poet's dream of Walpurgis night, or for such an artist as Doré to picture a new and more appalling vision of the inferno's lower circles. He saw a dim, marsh-like expanse, whose further boundaries were completely veiled in vapors. It extended on three sides of the solid ground that underlay the shaft alone. It was roofed by the black underbeams of the floor above and out of its mire rose the old granite piles that supported them. That dim expanse must be called Swamp, or Marsh, because a better name has not been made to name it by. But nature never made a marsh like that. Between the granite pillars, fungoids and some kind of whitish vegetation like pale rushes grew thickly. But though those fungoids and rushes had a strangeness of their own, it was not the vegetable growth alone which made Reed's marsh peculiar. Its entire space was a crawl with living forms that for repulsiveness could only be compared to a resurgence from their graves of creatures dead and half-decayed. Cullen saw them by a livid light that by no means increased their beauty, a light that was derived from the fungoids. These singular growths glowed with a whitish-gray effulgence that, diffused by curling vapors, gave the place such a dim illumination as might grace the surface of a witch's cauldron. A cold, dank cauldron it was, with fires pale and heatless as the moon, and giving off with its mist-wraiths the effluvium of decay and of the life that springs from decay. Like some horrible hidden ulcer, Reed's workroom lay festering, and above it, the black beams of the old house dripped and rotted with its moisture. Not to Cullen had been the sight of a white marble rotunda, opal-domed, where surrounded by golden thrones a strange marsh glowed. But even had he seen it, that place to this had been homelike, as its white hounds were kindly, friendly beasts compared to the creatures of this. Out from among the slimy rushes and glimmering fungoids, out of the rising whorls of vapor came a thing. It leaped in one bound from the mire to a scrambling foothold on the firm ground where Cullen sat. Save that it was neither the reptile nor saurian one might expect from such a breeding place, the creature was hard to classify. In color it might have been white, but for the mire in which it had been wallowing. High above four slender legs arched a thin, shaggy back and beneath the plaster of mud and green slime, gaunt ribs stood out like the bones of a beast that has starved to death in the desert. Its head, drooping low at the end of a neck equally gaunt and colloped, had a feline shape. But no honest great cat of the jungle ever owned such eyes. Large, lampant, yellow as topaz, they stared Cullen in the face with a most curiously knowing expression, and its knowledge was solely evil. The brute was silent. In all that place there was no sound but the drip of water, an occasional splash or swishing of the rushes. It was silent and stared him eye to eye. Then the lips drew up in a fiend snarl that disclosed the yellow fangs of a fiend behind. 
one stiff-legged forward step it took, still staring at its securely bound prey. Sick with repulsion rather than healthy fear, Cullen knew that it meant to spring. This, he thought, was the final revenge Reed had planned for his servant Slayer, to have his throat torn out by those grinning, detestable jaws. By one great effort, and without a word or a glance of appeal to the man beside him, Cullen steadied himself to meet death as he had always met its danger, unswervingly, eye to eye, and face to face. End of chapter 21